You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey, Life Church Livonia, what's up? It's me, Alex, your boy, you know what I'm saying, up in here. Welcome to our series, Life Is. This is week two of the series. If you missed last week, go watch it. You're on the internet, it's on the internet. You could go see it. Uh, this series is something we're doing in the midst of our building campaign. We're calling this our home campaign, as Life Church Livonia is looking for a permanent home in our community, a home base, if you will, from which to do ministry. And it was important to me as we were in the middle of the home campaign to take a step back and go, a building is awesome, but looking for a building just for security or a sense of permanence, those are bad goals and those are great outcomes, right? They're they're a great side effect of having a home base, but the reason that we're doing this is to follow Jesus. Last week we talked about how life is all about knowing God, and that's what, one of our first mission priorities here at Life Church Livonia, that people would come to know Jesus and a salvific and life-changing relationship. Our second mission priority here at Life Church Livonia is that people would grow into maturity and depth of relationship with both God and His body. And so the series Life Is, we're taking a look at what Life Church Livonia is all about, but also what life itself is all about. And this week we're going to talk a little bit about growing up. Uh, I don't know what you wanted to be when you grew up, but I wanted to be Peter Pan. (laughs) And here's a picture of me as Peter himself. This little costume uh, I wore incessantly from about the time I was two till I was five. I no kidding wore this sucker every single day with a rad pair of cowboy boots that got crapped out of this picture, but boy, they were looking classy. I was so obsessed with Peter Pan, I called my mom Wendy and my dad John, which is weird looking back because those were brothers and sisters and you know that's a whole thing, but we're gonna move on from that. I called people in my family uh, the names of characters in uh, Peter Pan, and so I'd dress up in my costume every day, and then I'd sit down for my daily dose of Peter Pan. Sometimes it'd be the animated classic. I loved the Mary Martin live action play Peter Pan, and every once in a while it would be the instant classic with Robin Williams, Hook, Rufio, you know what I'm talking about, it's the best, oh my gosh, that's such a classic. And then I would run out into my backyard and pretend that it was Neverland and that I was Peter Pan and I would have all these adventures. Peter Pan was my hero. I loved how Peter fought to preserve imagination and childlike wonder and how he protected what was innocent in a world that was so dark and how he embodied joy. Peter was direct defiance to the jaded and cynical attitude of people like Captain Hook that most adults grow up to represent and um, develop. That was the story I fell in love with. However, as I grew up, I realized that there were parts of Peter's story that were Uh, not so awesome, that were actually real tragedies. You see, Peter brings this London girl named Wendy and her brothers to Neverland so that Wendy can be his new mother and the mother of the lost boys who were orphans just like Peter. It becomes clear throughout the story that Wendy has romantic feelings for Peter and Peter has them back, but because he won't go back with her and grow up, they can't ever really be in a relationship because To be in a relationship would mean to take care of somebody else. It would mean to take on responsibility and not just adventures. It would mean to leave Neverland and it would mean to grow up. When it comes time for Winnie to leave, Peter has to make a choice. 
Is he going to grow up and go home and have a real family for the first time in his life? Or is he going to stay in Neverland and by default stay alone? Peter chooses to stay in Neverland and he doesn't grow up. But by definition, Peter also chooses to remain both alone and immature. Peter refuses to grow up and he fights against the adult in his life, Captain Hook. That's his MO. He goes on adventures, he plays games, he schemes, he pranks, he looks for treasure, and he never grows up. And because he refuses to grow up, he doesn't just gain things like eternal youth, he loses things as well. He loses, for example, the chance at a meaningful relationship with Wendy. He loses the possibility of a real family. He remains king of the lost boys, but he never leads them to become found boys. And he trades purpose for wandering and looking for adventure. The temptation to live a Peter Pan life, where we get older but never grow up, is a real and present temptation for every single person, especially when it comes to our emotional lives and our spiritual lives. <clears throat> we face that temptation in our relationship with our spouse or our significant other when, you know, one of us hurts the other, and then there's the reaction that he or she always gives, and then we're trying to decide if we're gonna bring up that thing from last month, and we're trying to bite our tongue before we say you're just like your dad or you're just like your mom. And, and we find ourselves at this crossroad in every conflict where we go, okay, am I gonna to continue to handle conflict like I always have, or am I gonna to decide to handle this conflict more like Jesus would and grow up a little bit? We face this same temptation at work or at school. You know, maybe work has really piled on lately for you and it feels like you're underwater. You know, we spend hours when we get home every night working on our, our work or thinking about our work and we live distracted and disconnected from our families and we tell ourselves it's just a busy season. But it's been a busy season for a couple years now, hasn't it? We've stopped laughing as much. We let that hobby we enjoyed go. We never have enough time to build the friendships we really want and need, and we're constantly fighting at home. We find ourselves at a crossroads in this place. Are we going to continue to die to the wrong things in our life? And are we going to continue to live without limits in order to get that teacher or boss's approval or maybe even God's approval? Or are we going to rest in God's approval for us and cultivate a healthier kind of life and grow up a little bit? We face this temptation in our friendships. We live and we act a certain way around our family or our church or at work. And then we act a totally different way around our friends. Values we normally hold in most spaces in our life get challenged or compromised around our friends. We just want to fit in. We just want them to like us. But the end result is that we end up living this double life where we separate our life into these sacred and secular compartments. And we end up not being people of integrity. And we come to a crossroads. Are we going to continue to do that? Or are we going to grow up a little bit? We face this temptation in our faith as well, especially one of the ways I see it so blatantly right now is we criticize Christians for being hypocrites. We point out all the ways in which they're really truly not living in the way of Jesus. We show how judgmental some can be and how sinful and how simply mean at times and how uninformed and how poor they can be at handling conflict. But... In our lives, we're not really any more mature than they are. And so we end up criticizing people for weaknesses we share with them. And instead of doing the hard work to be humble and repentant and contrite in heart and broken before God and grow in our own soul, we just criticize other people for not doing it too. And we come to a crossroads. Am I going to put in the work to be more like Jesus and grow up a little bit or continue just to point the finger at other people 
who are not doing a great job at it either. I can't possibly list all the areas, but the temptation to grow older and never grow up is a real and present temptation for all of us. All of us have areas in our life where we are growing and need to grow and need to continue to grow into full maturity. And the question we want to look at today is, who does God want you to be when you grow up? Who does God want you to be when you grow up? And what does he want your life to look like? And I want to help answer that question today because this is one of our core things that at Life Church Livonia, our church is all about, and we believe that life itself is all about. And so there's a, a, Jesus is the master of life, and he is the perfect example of how to live as a human being in this world. And in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells two stories about different kinds of plants, actually. And he makes some comparisons with those stories uh, about two different kinds of lives. And, and one life is one he wants you to grow into, and the other life is one that is bad and he wants you to not grow up into, and he's warning us against and so we're going to take a look at this passage in Luke 13 as Jesus talks about these kinds of plants. <clears throat> it says, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He then put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This next section, Jesus is about to tell us about the mustard seed, and this is in Luke 13. But Matthew 13 gives a little more detail, so I'm going to jump to that scripture, even though this same story comes right after in Luke. So I just want to get a little more detail for our discussion today from Matthew. It says this, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so the birds come and perch in its branches. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. And it feels kind of disparate, doesn't it? It's like, okay, you're talking about a fig tree and all of a sudden scene change, we're in a synagogue on the Sabbath and all of a sudden scene change, now we're talking about mustard seeds. Like, what's going on here? What, what's going on here, Jesus? What are you trying to tell me? Well, let's break it down into sections together because it took me many years to understand this scripture and a professor of mine at Spring Arbor named Rich Cornell really opened my eyes to the power of it. And I, I hope I can offer you some of that today. Uh, the first section that we're going to talk about is about the fig tree. We find this fig tree in a vineyard. What does that mean? It means it wasn't planted on accident. 
right? It's not a random tree. This tree was planted in a farm on purpose with the purpose of bearing fruit. It's not wild. It's here on purpose and it's here for a purpose. The problem is the fig tree isn't fulfilling its purpose. The fig tree is not bearing any fruit at all. Not only that, but year after year, the fig tree is not bearing any fruit. And the vineyard owner is very frustrated by this. And he says, for three years now, I've been coming back to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? You see, the reason the tree is not producing fruit is a, the, the reason that's a problem is because it's just, it's not just not producing fruit, it's using resources and then not giving anything back. It's a tree that's whole life is all taking and no giving. It's consuming, but it's not contributing. The resources it absorbs stay within it and it does not reproduce itself. Because remember, fruit is not just about us eating something tasty, right? Fruit is where the seed of the next tree is. And the fact that this tree is not producing any fruit, the problem isn't that it's not producing something tasty for the vineyard owner. The problem is it's not reproducing itself at all. It's totally self-focused. Before the tree can be cut down, though, a farmhand steps in and asks the caretaker of the vineyard to just patiently wait one more year. The farmhand will give it a little bit more time, a little bit more attention, and then if the tree doesn't produce fruit, they'll cut it down. The expectation for this tree to produce fruit is so high that if it can't produce fruit, it can't stay in the vineyard. So that's Jesus' first parable. And then he has some interaction with some folks on the Sabbath, and we're going to come back to that. But then he bookends that with another parable about a different plant. And this is a garden story about a mustard seed. So <clears throat> the mustard seed says this again in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so the birds come and perch in its branches. Okay, so it's an interesting story because we find ourselves in another farm. That Hebrew word there, I'm sorry, yeah, Hebrew word, Greek word, I'm sorry, used for field, um, does not just mean like a random meadow. <laughs> like we're not finding this just like out and wild, like, oh, look at that field over there. It so happens there's a mustard tree, you know. That's not what's happening here. This is like a farmer's field, right? It's not a meadow. It's, it's a, a field meant for cultivating plants, cultivating food, right? So this tree too is not an accident. This was a seed that was planted on purpose for a purpose. And this farmer plants this tiny seed in his field, but it grows into such a large plant that it becomes a small tree. So much so that it's not just good for the garden, it creates and sustains a healthy ecosystem. Notice the scripture says that birds came and perched in its branches, meaning that animals that were once not a part of interacting with this part of the garden are brought in. This tree isn't just uh, doing a good job growing into full maturity on its own. It's bringing in things and parts of the ecosystem that once were not a part of it to be a part of this new garden that it has created by growing up. So why would Jesus tell these stories and what do they have to do with us growing up into full maturity and, and what do we do about them? Well, these stories aren't random, okay? These are directly connected 
to the things that come before and after them. Immediately after the story about the fig tree, Jesus and the Pharisees have an incident. This is what happens. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Jewish synagogue is like church. Remember, Sabbath, holy day, day of rest. No work is to be done. And a woman who was there who had been crippled by a spirit for eight, a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the day of no work, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord said to him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your, your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? Here's what I want you to know about this interaction and the stories about the fig tree and the mustard seed. The Pharisees are the fig tree. They believe in God. They are planted in his vineyard, but their life is not a gift to those around them. They are giving nothing of substance back. They're not producing fruit that gives themselves away as a blessing to other people. They are so self-absorbed, they will take care of an animal on the Sabbath, but not another human being. Remember, the Sabbath is a holy day. No work's to be done. In their minds, to work, uh, in their minds, it's work to love and care for another person. But it's not work to care for their animals. And let's not be so quick to judge, right? I know I have often felt that way. When it's my Sabbath and I get interrupted by somebody, I'm like, oh, great, here I go. Okay, muster up the energy, pal. But that is a fig tree attitude. That is not godliness. That's my own brokenness and sinfulness. And Jesus is showing in the fig tree and in the Pharisees that there is a certain kind of life that is self-absorbed and that gives to itself but is not a gift to other people. These lives take resources from the places they are planted. These lives take and they do not give back. And Jesus says these lives are in danger of destruction. And they're not just in danger of destruction from God, right? This isn't totally punitive. Some of this is natural consequence. All of us know this to be true. A selfish life self-destructs. A selfish life self-destructs. We know and we see that. It's the way the whole world works. The fig tree and the Pharisees are like Peter Pan. They're growing older, but they're never growing up into full maturity. Year after year, they get older, but they bear no fruit. The mustard seed, on the other hand, is different. The mustard seed grows into this plant that is a gift to the garden it's planted in and is strong enough for animals to come and rest in its shade. The mustard seed grows into a plant that creates a whole new ecosystem around itself that creates flourishing, both for that ecosystem and the garden it's planted in. And I want you to see this. Jesus is the mustard seed. When this woman who is suffering enters the synagogue and she encounters the Pharisees, she receives impatience, she receives annoyance, she receives dismissal, and is treated like a burden. When she enters the synagogue and encounters Jesus, 
She receives healing. Jesus' life produces fruit in this woman. His presence with her is literally a healing presence. And when this woman comes to the tree of Jesus' life, she is able to rest in his shade. Wherever Jesus is, healing is. Wherever Jesus is, rest is. Wherever Jesus is, heaven is. Wherever Jesus is, God is. And I want you to know that is meant to be your life too. That is meant to be your life too. Like both seeds, we're not planted on this earth on accident. We're planted on purpose, for a purpose. And God's vision for your life is that you would grow up into the mustard seed, not into the fig tree. His purpose is that the seed of faith planted in your soul would give birth to such a large and mature life with God that the garden of your life would become a gift to the whole world and a place where other people can rest. Like Jesus, your presence is meant to be a healing presence. Your presence is made to be a clarifying presence. Your presence is designed to be a forgiving presence. So that where Marissa is, Peace is, joy is, love is. That where Steve is, truth is, grace is, kindness is. So that where Jake is, rest is, gentleness is, goodness is. So that where Sarah is, faith is, hope is, power is. That wherever you are, people would experience life, would experience a taste of heaven, and would experience God. This is what life is about. Life is about growing up into a spiritual adult whose life is a gift to the world. The culture pulls us towards a fig tree, Peter Pan life. But God wants you to grow up into so much more than that. He wants you to grow up to be like him. And honestly, it's been encountering people that have done that work that have gone to the cross with Jesus and matured in the resurrection of their lives. It's because of people like that that I want to follow Jesus. I think of my friend Sharon. Sharon is the only person I know. She's a a full-time missionary in Hamtramck, Michigan, not far from here. She's the only person I know who got mugged and led the guy to Jesus. (laughs) We like to say that Sharon is the only one we know that can turn a mugging into a hugging. (laughs) And... (laughs) I found out that Sharon once found out Hamtramck was in bankruptcy. And so she wrote a grant and then started a lawn mowing business and single-handedly saved the city from bankruptcy. Every time I'm in Sharon's orbit and I see her love for God and her deep and present love for people, I think, oh my gosh, there is so much more to a life with God. And I want it because I see Sharon's life. I also think of Bob Hoy, who has spoken here many, many times. When my family was living at Bear Lake, uh, it was Bob who came to visit my dad. And he said, hey, there's this thing called church planning. There's a conference going on. I think you should come with me. I feel like you'd be into this. And my dad was like, ah, no, I'm good. We really like our life here. And Bob said, hey, just come. What can it hurt? Just a couple days. And my dad came back from that and went, oh, my gosh, God is calling me to this. It's because of Bob's invitation, the wheels were set in motion for the whole Life Church Network to exist. And over 15 years ago, it was Bob and a doctor in his congregation who created Covenant Community Care, which is a medical facility with multiple locations across Detroit. 
that provides medical care to the insured and uninsured, the documented and undocumented, to the poor as well as to the well-off. Jesus was a healer, and so they heal in Jesus' name. And Amber, my wife, worked at Covenant Community Care for four years, and it provided for my family. Bob's influence has created this tree. His, his life with God is this tree whose shade my whole life has been impacted by and rested in in so many different ways. Whenever I'm around Bob, I see his love for God and his love for people, and I think, oh my gosh, there is so much more to following Jesus than where I'm at. i got to keep going. There's so many more people who have inspired me over the years and that have shown me by their repentant hearts and their gracious postures, by their willingness to learn, by their commitment to a humble holiness, that it is worth it to follow Jesus in this chaotic and complex life. Life is truly better with God. It's these people who have been gifts to me, who have challenged me to grow up, that my life might be a gift to others like their lives were gifts to me. And so you may be sitting here today and going, man, that sounds great, but boy, I feel far from that. <laughs> I love what you're saying, Alex, but that does not sound like me. Where do I even begin? I want to end with just two really practical steps for us today. Growing into maturity in Christ requires growing in our love for God and then translating that into a love for people. So I want to give you a simple tool to love God more deeply and some simple questions to love people more deeply. Take a look at this card here. We made this card for our middle schoolers. This summer, Lucian and I uh, got to counsel at Bear Lake Bible Camp together with some of our middle school boys. And we found as we talked with the kids, many of them wanted to spend time with God. They just had no idea how. No one had ever told them. No one had ever taught them. And so I just gave them this short little list and we made it into a devotional card that you get today. It's a free and available for download, uh, but that we're giving to our middle schoolers as well. And this simple devotional guide is this, is that I will sit in silence for X number of minutes. And when we sit in silence, all these different things begin to come up. And my encouragement to you is just write them down and, and just go, wow, this is what's inside of me today. And, it, and silence stills and focuses our hearts and minds. And then pick something to read in scripture. Maybe you read Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs and 31 days in many months. So you can read a chapter of Proverbs a day. Maybe you've never read through the Gospels and you go, you know what, I want to read through the Gospels. Maybe you've never read the Epistles and you go, I'm going to start in James. But just pick a book of the Bible to read and write down questions that come to mind and write down observations that you notice. And then finally, end in prayer. And the little lines on the card are because one of the things I said to the middle schoolers is, um, part of how our life begins to become a bigger tree that other people can rest in is we pray for people other than ourselves and not just on accident. Right? Praying on accident is fine. It's good. But it's like, I wasn't intending to do this right now. But all of a sudden, I'm thinking about this person and I'm praying for them. That Nothing is wrong with that. But if we only pray on accident, we never pray on purpose. And spiritual adults pray on purpose. Not just for themselves, but for the people in their circle of influence. So, this is, how our, this is just a simple tool that helps our life become a gift to others by taking us deeper into our love for God. My challenge to you is to spend time alone with God five days a week at least. You may need to start at three and work your way up from there. But without spending time with God on purpose, we're not going to grow closer to him. You were made to be a life-giving and healing presence like Jesus. But you can't grow into that if you don't spend time with Jesus. 
A quick aside on that note, your next step may not be adding something, it may be taking something away. I remember, I think it was Game of Thrones, I don't remember the show exactly. There's a professor at my school who I love, Paul Patton, and um, <clears throat> someone asked him if he had seen the show that was really popular. I think it was Game of Thrones, but I don't remember. And, you know, it was a show that kind of was like a little bit edgy. It had some inappropriate things in it, but, you know, the writing was really good. And Paul is an avid storyteller. And so they wanted to know what he thought about the story. And he just looked at them and said, I have worked too hard to cultivate the garden of my mind to let something silly like that show ruin it. And I went, whoa, that is amazing. And it just challenged me to think, what am I putting in the soil of my own soul? What entertainment, what things for fun, what ways to relax, what hobbies are maybe not even wrong or sinful. Maybe they are and you should stop. But maybe they're just not helping me grow. And I went, okay, that's a challenge to me. Now, let's talk about some ways to now extend that to people, right? That's about, okay, loving God and, and um, moving into my own soul to become more like him and be with him. But then how do we express that for people? Well, there's a list of questions that I got from this Jewish, uh, German-Jewish philosopher, theologian named Martin Buber, who wrote this classic psychological work, I and Thou. And these questions are this, am I being present or distracted? Right, when I'm with people, am I thinking about what's next? Am I thinking about how to respond? Am I thinking about what to say? Am I listening just to respond? Or am I present? I'm, I'm here, I'm with you right now. The second question is, am I judging? Or loving. There is a moment where Martin Buber, who is you know a Jew, got to spend time with T.S. Eliot, who was uh, you know a famous more he was a Protestant theologian in the mid-century of the 19th century, and people were thinking it was going to be this like conflicted, like intense discussion between the two of them as they talked about all their differences and battled theologically. And after they had this discussion, and all these reporters came to Buber and said, "What was it like to talk to T.S. Eliot? What do you think of him?" And he says, "When I am with him." I see not the issues, but the man. And it just is so striking that he was able to see who the person was beyond the ways he disagreed with him. And so when I'm with people, am I only able to see the places I disagree with their life? Or am I able to truly see them? And then finally, the third question is, am I willing to change? Or am I committed to staying the same? One of the things that I find so powerful about some of those spiritual adults I told you that propelled my life toward Jesus is how willing they are to learn from everyone. And there, are, I feel humbled and embarrassed sometimes. There have been things I've said around them that just are on the top of my mind and they just like take the posture of a student before me. And I've just been so embarrassed because I go like, oh my gosh, you should not be learning from me. This should be the other way around. And, uh, and yet I respect them so much for that. And um, even, you know, in the conversation I said earlier about Martin Buber and T.S. Eliot, you know, Martin said he was willing to change by hearing from T.S. Eliot and not so committed to staying the same that he just was fighting for what he already thought. One of the things I love about these questions is they just so embody the gospel. Right? When Jesus came from heaven to earth to take the sins of humanity upon himself and offer us new life and life to the full, he truly in body became present with us. He was not distracted. And when we see him interacting with this woman at the synagogue, 
He is not distracted. He is totally present to this person. The second question, am I judging or loving? Jesus is the rightful judge of all the world, and he will judge the earth at the end of days. And yet, instead of just judging in full justice and righteousness and perfect truth, he came down to offer himself as a sacrifice of love. And then lastly, am I willing to change or committed to staying the same? The Son of God, the Word that created the world, changed from spiritual being into physical being so that you and I might have forgiveness of sins and full access to the heart of God with no separation. These questions are so beautiful to me because they are just so the life of Jesus. And today I want you to know that that life is available to you. That Jesus did come from heaven to earth because he loves you. And he wants you to know God and to grow into full maturity in Christ that your life might be a gift to the world. He has forgiven every sin of yours and he is offering you new life and life to the full. And I just wanna invite you to pray with me right now and to receive that in a deep and new way. Whatever your next step is today, maybe it's implementing those questions, maybe it's taking a step up in your time with God, maybe it's uh, having a conversation of reconciliation or forgiveness, maybe it's apologizing, maybe it's accepting Jesus for the first time. I just want you to know you were made to be a gift to the world and my prayer is that you would grow into a great gift to all the people on earth, just like Jesus. So Lord, we come before you in great need of you. Father, we are sorry for all the ways in which we have sinned and done life our own way and our own wisdom and our own foolishness. And Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness. Purify my heart, cleanse me, Lord Jesus. Make me new and restore what's broken in me. And Lord, renew me in intimacy with you and the Father. I pray, Lord, for just a refreshed gift of your Holy Spirit this morning. And Lord, I pray that I would follow you in even greater measure, that my life might be like yours, a gift to the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please, please, please fill out our digital connection card so we can help you take your next steps.